Welcome to the Dublin Bible Talks, midweek Bible talks for workers in Dublin. I'm Cameron Jones. Paul wrote that we are not saved by good works, but by grace saved for good works that God had prepared in advance for us to do. What are these good works? Well, Paul begins to tell us in Ephesians 4 that we studied this week. And, perhaps to our surprise, the first thing he talks about is church. And please consider joining us live on Wednesdays from your workplace, 1pm Dublin time on Zoom. It's a simple way of identifying as a Christian in your workplace. Simply use the link bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. That's bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. Well, friends, what is the impact of Jesus Christ's resurrection and ascension? Ephesians is a study of the glorious news that Jesus did not just die for our sins, but he rose again and his resurrection makes him the Lord of all creation. And also, he didn't just rise, he ascended. He is installed as the Lord of all. And we who believe in him are in Christ. We're joined to him. And so, if in Christ we died, then in Christ we are raised up with him. Verse uh, Chapter 2, verse 6. And we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Remember, friends, this is not just written also to one person, but to people who are gathered together as Christ's people. It's a circular letter, but it's to groups of Christians, not to individuals. So as we read, we remember that we're reading a letter written to people who follow Jesus, and as a result, they gather together regularly. And that's the New Testament's definition of church. The New Testament never uses the word church to refer to a building, so we need to get that kind of rubbish out of our heads right away. But what do you want church? What do you want a Christian gathering to be like? What makes a good church? What makes a good church meeting? We live in a culture that analyses and it compares and it shops and it consumes and the consumer determines what is right. Well, how does that relate to church, to groups of Christians gathering together? If you went to a new church and visited visited one, how would you assess that meeting? What would make the service the best one this year? What would you say, oh, it would be much better if... How would you finish that sentence? And what is the proper role of a church leader? What should they be doing? Well, this passage that we're looking at from Ephesians gives us Jesus' plan for his people as they gather together, when they church. And we find that the characteristics of the people of God when they gather together are, first of all, verses 1 to 6, that they are unified. Secondly, verses 7 to the first part of verse 12, they are gifted. And third, the second half of verse 12 to the end of verse 16, they are mature. Unified, gifted, and mature. So first of all, verses 1 to 6, unified in Christ. Have a look at those verses again. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You'll remember in chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, and we'll come back to that a couple of times, but you'll remember in that that we were saved by grace 
four good works that God prepared in advance for us to you. And you'd be wondering, what what are those good works that should be still in our minds? What does it mean to live a life worthy of the calling you've received? Verse 1. What does that look like? What kind of good works has God prepared in advance for us to do? Well, that's what this section of Ephesians begins to address. And isn't it interesting that while we... While we uh, look at life in the world, while while we do look at life in the household, while Paul does encourage us to look at what life looks like in the family, what he begins with is life in a group of Christians as they gather in a church. That's what he seems to say is the most important place to start as you're thinking about outworking this new life that we're living. Is that how you think of church, friends? Does it take that kind of priority in our lives? Of course, it must mean that living this new life, it must look like we recognise that we have nothing to boast in. That's one of the things that we'll find throughout this teaching. We're saved by grace. We've got nothing to boast about. We are completely dependent on the Lord for everything we have. And this seems to be particularly important to remember as we gather together. And Paul, we see, is very realistic about what we need as we gather together. Have a look at verse 2. He first of all says that we need to bear with each other. He says we need to make every effort. I think that that means that we need to remember that the reason we need to make every effort is because we are still, in our own very special ways, deeply annoying. We are all sometimes hard work. And so we need to bear with each other. But look with me at the verse that follows, verse 3, and say something that's very important. He says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The hard work we put into gentleness and patience and bearing with each other is not what makes the unity of the Christian. It keeps the unity that has been made for us by Jesus. The word means to keep it, to watch it, to guard it, to protect it. When we gather together as Christian people, when we come to church, we do something, we come together to something that is unified, not something that we need to unify. And if the singing doesn't work at church, it doesn't break our unity. If the overhead doesn't work, it doesn't break our unity. If we find it hard to get on with someone, that does not break the unity that exists. If we find that the person at the front has an annoying habit of sniffing every three seconds, or you don't like the way that he or she speaks, that doesn't break our unity. Look at verse 4 and notice the repetition. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the Jewish Christian and the Palestinian Christian are unified in Christ. The Ukrainian Christian and the Russian Christian are unified in Christ. The Christian with a history of colonialism and the Christian with a history of being colonised are unified in Christ. So we who are Christians are one. We are, even us on this call, unified. We are in Christ. 
And what we are called to do is to live in a manner worthy of that reality, worthy of that calling, worthy of the unity that has been given to us as a gift by Jesus' death and his resurrection. But we're not just left trying to work out what that looks like by ourselves. We're not not left without tools to be able to put that into practice and to recognise us. No, Christ gave us gifts. And that's what we see in verses uh, 7 to 12. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. In verse 4, Paul has repeated the word one to emphasise the unity between all of us. But here in verse 7, we learn that each one that is in unity is gifted by his grace. And the gifts that we, uh, that we have are not our own to take pride in. No, they are given to us by our king. They're not really our gifts, but they are his gifts to us. And that is not a surprise for those of us who know our Old Testament, like we should, claims Paul. Because he turns to the Old Testament and quotes it in verse 8. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. That psalm remembers God's rescue of his people in the Old Testament at the time of the Exodus. God did not just receive the gifts of his conquest. He didn't just receive a people for himself. No, he also generously chose a group from among those people and he gave them a special role, a gift back to the people from among the people he'd saved. God in the Old Testament gave back to his people the Levites, an entire tribe of their own people who would serve them by working in the temple. Paul sees that this was pointing forward to what Jesus did in a much greater way, rescuing Not just Israelites from Egypt, but Jesus coming to earth and dying in our place and ascending to glory on his throne so that we might be his people, regardless of our heritage. Remember in chapter 2, he'd spelled that out. I'll read it again to remind us. When he says to these Gentile people, like most of us, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The Lord Jesus ascends to his throne, leading the rewards, the gifts of his conquest, his rescue people, Christians. 
And God and Paul sees that Jesus, having rescued us, has not just taken his seat in glory, enjoying the spoils of his conquest, but out of his people, he takes some of them and gives them back to his people with special roles. He gives them as gifts. But we don't need priests anymore. We don't need people to stand in between us and God because Jesus is our great high priest. He is the only mediator we need between us and the Father. And so, who are God's gifts back to his church and what do they do? Well, that's what we find in verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. Now, friends, here we find the answer to that question that has been hanging since chapter 2, verse 10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for works he's created in advance for us to do. As we read chapter 4, we should still have very clearly in our minds the question, well, what are these works that God has prepared for us as a group of Christian people to do? Think now, what do you expect Christians to be doing? What are our priorities about our actions? What, What should Christians be working at? Well, we need to listen to what God says he wants his people to be working at, as he spells it out here. But before we do that, we need to hear about those people that God gifts to the rest of the people of God to prepare them for the works of service. And Paul singles out some of those gifts that God has given. Apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers. Friends, what do you think should be the role of a rector or a vicar or a pastor or an evangelist in a church? First, notice that these gifts of Jesus are to his people, to his church. These are people who have a special task to speak about Jesus, but they're not directed to people who are outside the congregation. No, they are to prepare God's people for works of service. These teachers, these leaders, these apostles, these prophets, they are sent by God, and in fact the language here indicates they are being hand-picked by Jesus to prepare the rest of the congregation. You there, you Christian who are on this call, gathered in Jesus' name with his people, the job of the teacher, my job, is to prepare you for your work that God has prepared in advance for you to do. When we invite an evangelist to a church to come and preach, what is the primary work of an evangelist? It is actually not for them to do the evangelism for us, as if that was their job and not ours. The evangelist, the person who speaks the gospel's job, according to this passage, is to train the everyday Christian, you, (laughs) me as well, to tell our friends about Jesus. My job title with Irish Church Missions is to be a pioneer evangelist. And my job is to train you, everyday Christians in the workplace, to do the work God has prepared for you, telling unbelievers about Jesus. As a teacher, the way I teach, I hope, teaches you how to read the Bible for yourself. 
Someone I know says that when they preach, they don't just prepare the meal, they invite people to come into the kitchen to see how the the meal is prepared, to see how the sermon is prepared, so that you can learn for yourselves how to read the Bible, so that you can also teach each other, so that you can speak the truth about Jesus to each other. That's why I love the WhatsApp group that we've got. It's a place where we can share and encourage each other, practicing our work. And that makes going to church, remember we're not really a church here, I can't do pastoral care like a minister of a church would be able to do, although I do pray every day that this midweek gathering will one day turn into a church because so many people have come to Jesus through your evangelistic work. Wouldn't that be fantastic? But regarding your regular church, if you don't turn up, It's not about what you're going to miss out on. If you don't gather regularly with the church, what you're doing is stealing from your brothers and sisters your encouragement of them. If you uh, listen to how it's said in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, where he says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you say, see the day approaching. The focus on gathering is to meet together to encourage each other. My job and my time here is to train you in that work of spurring one another on. The question is, Are you mentally ready? Are you constitutionally ready? Are you prepared to be doing that? Is that how you think about yourself as a Christian? Or is it possible, is it possible perhaps that you're still not confident to share your faith and encourage others? If that's the case, then my job is to help you do it. If you're not ready to do it, ask ask for longer and more searching and demanding sermons at your church so that you are better prepared for it. Ask for training in how to share the gospel clearly and effectively. I'd be very happy to do that. It would overjoy me if you came to me and say, said, Cameron, would you teach me how to share the message of Jesus better and more effectively? It's the job of the evangelist to prepare you to evangelize, to tell other people the wonderful news about Jesus. The work of the apostle is to prepare you to be sent out into the world to live and act and speak to the glory of Jesus. That's why we study the Bible, to be prepared by those sent by God himself to prepare us for the work. Works prepared in advance. What are these works? Well, notice with me that the nature, the focus of the words, the the works that God has prepared for his people, is that they are works of, verse 12, service. They're not works that are focused on us individually. God's gifts to his people are not for the benefit of the person who's been given the gift. The gift of the preacher is not given so that the preacher becomes far and wide known as a great preacher. That can be a temptation, but that's not the purpose of the gift of preaching. And the words of the preacher are not designed to equip the hearer for something that will benefit you individually. That might be a temptation for you, but that's not the purpose. No, the gifts are prepared 
for you to serve others, for me to serve others. In this context, the primary meaning, as Paul was writing it, was the service of others in the church that they went to. In line with the humility and gentleness and the meekness of God's people, the works prepared in advance for us to do are focused outside of ourselves. Ah, but what what purpose? What is the objective of these works of service? Well, the answer begins halfway through verse 12, starting with the words, so that. Do you say, see it there? Verse 12, so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God's purpose for his people is that they be unified in Christ, gifted by Christ, and mature in Christ. The body of Christ is what he says, verse 12, the second half. That is what we are, friends, who love Jesus and are devoted to him. As Christians gather, we are a physical representation, a physical expression of our Lord and of his rule on the earth. That is what church is. That's what a gathering of Christians are. We are his body. And while we might not look impressive, we are God's declaration to the universe of the glory of his Son. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 10. That's what you are highlighting every time you take a lunch break and listen to God's word. And the works of service we're being trained for by being taught every work by his word are to build God's people. The objective of this building work by service-inspired God's word being preached, verse 13, to be united, to come to unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And what is being called becoming mature, to grow up, (laughs) to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Do you see that phrase there? The whole measure is what we might call uh, being filled to the brim, growing up to know in your experience what you know to be true already, that we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ, chapter 1, verse 3, that we are made complete, that we are sitting with our King as he reigns over the whole universe, chapter 2, verse 6. That is the purpose of the gifts that God has given each one of us, so that when when we meet together, whether it's here on a Wednesday, whether it's at church on a Sunday, that purpose should be foremost in our minds. That even your being here, your presence on the call, is being an encouragement to others. It certainly is to me, and I'm your brother too. When you come along on a Wednesday, you're encouraging me to keep going, to build me up in my own trust in Jesus. And that is true for the others who are on here as well. As you meet and as you use the gifts that God has given you to build up each other's trust in Jesus so that we become mature. Uh, That's the purpose of the WhatsApp group, particularly for the Dublin Bible Talks. And if you haven't thought like that before, certainly you will from now on, won't you? Now that you've seen that this is the reason that Jesus Christ, our King, gives us apostles in the New Testament and teachers and evangelists. 
to build us up so that we can build others up. Through this faulty person talking to you right now, by together examining this passage, you should be convinced that this is your role as a Christian, to meet and serve other Christians so that they will be built up by our encouragement toward maturity in Christ. Now, what will that look like in practice? Well, maybe you can read the passage beforehand before you come along, either to Wednesday or to any Sunday meeting you might go to. You might take notes so it's easy to review with other people later on. You can note down your questions and ask the questions afterwards, either live or on the WhatsApp for us, or note a particular phrase that struck you and you can mention it to someone and discuss it and chat about it after the meeting. You can mention it to someone at work when they ask what you did on the weekend or what you did at lunchtime today. But what does Christian maturity end up looking like? Verse 14, have a look there. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Paul continues the thought of maturing by indicating that we won't be like little children anymore. Now, Jesus, you will remember, says that he does want his followers to be like little children, but Jesus' point in Mark chapter 10 is that we are to come to him completely dependent on him, as dependent as a child is to their, for their parent. But he's not promoting a naive faith that doesn't end up thinking and getting deeper. No, that's the kind of infancy that's dangerous and from which Paul writes to protect us. We were just hearing before that Daphne's uh, taking Siobhan to swimming lessons. She's doing that so that she will, as Siobhan grows up, not need Daphne to hold her in the water anymore, but she will be able to swim for herself. And that is what Jesus' hope is for us, that we will become mature and not be blown around and helpless in the water, but be able to swim. Jesus doesn't want us to be infant who will go with whoever calls them. I mean, isn't that a great fear that drives parents' protective behaviour? If you're a parent, you know the fear of a child wandering off with anyone who calls them, like a a wave that the wind just blows here and there. No, Jesus' purpose for his people, for those of us who even gather here on this call, is that we grow up to be mature and secure in our faith, so that when we do hear false teaching, we'll be able to recognise it and dismiss it, so that we're not taken in by it. Oh, friends, when false teaching comes, it will be cunning. And the false teaching, it sounds nice, and it's dispensed by people who will have a real craft in their arguments. They themselves will be nice and pleasant people and they will work hard to convince you of deceptive teaching. Yes, we know that we know you know Jesus and that's good, but what you really need to be a real Christian is to have this special experience of the Spirit that you can have with us. Oh, yes, you have good teaching, but our worship, our music is so extraordinary that you can really feel the Spirit in a way that you've never experienced before. If you, if you don't have that at your church, then you're really missing out on the real thing. That can be very deceptive teaching. 
and it can draw you away from the reality that is just Jesus Christ died, risen and ascended. There are people around who call themselves Christians, but they deny that God is angry at sin. They deny that Jesus suffered in our place to save us. And they might say, you need really to learn about loving acceptance and making no judgments, and you need to set aside some of what the Bible teaches. That's old-fashioned, and it's not very loving. And there's a growing tendency for people to talk of Jesus saving work only in terms of mental health or overcoming a personal tragedy or succeeding in studies and advancing in work, speaking as if Jesus is really just the ultimate life coach. And I've heard some people who call themselves Christians talk about dead relatives watching over them as if that was acceptable in Christian belief. There are so many people who are not able to hear the false teaching and they are blown away and blown around by the, like the waves of the sea. But when we're taught well by those gifts that God gives us, we will be ourselves equipped to speak the truth to each other, to grow up together into maturity, recognise such things as false and not be tossed around like a wave. But instead, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Notice that at the end, as each part does its work, as each one of us holds on to each other, together in this body. We all have a part to play, an essential part, in our growth together in our Lord. And how do we do it? Did you notice it there? We speak the truth in love. Friends, what is Jesus' purpose for Christian gatherings? First, that we are unified but not only unified. Second, that he gives us gifts. Some of Jesus' gifts are the training, to provide the training that each of us need to speak about Jesus. They prepare us to use these gifts. So that, third, we grow up to be mature Christians, mature in Christ, being completely centred on Jesus, the great and glorious Jesus. Right back at the beginning, I asked some questions. What would make a church service that you attended the best one this year? What do you say it would be far much better at church if? Well, Jesus wants each of us to devote ourselves to speaking truth of Jesus to each other and so express our love for each other by building each other up. That is really what would make the next church gathering you attend the best one you've been to. That is what would make it so much better than any other you might have been to in the past. Not by our definition of what makes a good church service and what makes a good gathering, but by Jesus' definition of what makes a good church gathering. So how will you be obedient to the Lord Jesus 
and speak the truth to each other in love and so build other Christians up to maturity. Thank you for listening to the recording of the Dublin Bible Talks. You can join us in real time on Wednesdays at 1pm Dublin time on Zoom, bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. That's bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks.